0: There are, there are many things that make us wonder if it's going to be OK. The news you just got at work, the next economic report, the last election, or the next election, or whichever election, depending on your political persuasion, what the doctor just told you, or what you just learned about your child, or the school you just didn't get into. The examples could be endless. There are all these things that make us, some suddenly, others over an incredibly long, painful time, unemployment, chronic diseases, cancer, make us wonder, is it going to be okay? And it's our natural tendency, and it's a normal tendency... That when we're faced with that, we want to find someone or something that will give us the comfort that it's going to be all right. So there's an entire self-help industry that has grown up around helping you find ways to say, I can make sure it's going to be okay. Beyond that, there's no shortage of individuals or companies or organizations that promise you if you buy this product or if you do this method of ours, It'll be okay. And what, we really are, what we're really really wanting to do is to do what we did when we were a little kid and we wiped out and blew up our knee or whatever. We ran over to mom or dad and curled up in their lap and they could just give us a big hug and say, it's all right. It's going to be okay. But what do you do when mom and dad are the problem or when mom and dad have passed on? Or when what you're dealing with, as deep as it is, no amount of parental love would be enough to deal with what you're wondering. Am I going to be okay? Well, that's really the question Ahaziah is asking in verse 2 in this passage. Am I going to be all right? Somebody tell me this is going to come out okay. And the point of the passage is almost disarmingly simple. The point of this passage of Scripture is that only God can be the one to tell you it's going to be okay. Only God can be the one who's going to tell you it's going to be okay. And in fact, if we run to any other answer to tell us we're going to be okay, we're not going to be okay. Any other answer stinks. Any other answer attracts flies. Now, the way we're going to see that, we're just going to look at two people, both of whom are really wondering how it's going to come out for them. One is Ahaziah the king. The other is this unnamed third captain of 50 men who's sent up to arrest Elijah. And in both of the cases, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the problem that this person has. We're going to look at the solution that this person pursues. And then we're going to try to tease out the belief that's underneath that. Not just what did they do, but why did they do it? So first off, Ahaziah the king. Ahaziah is the example of what it means to run to something other than the Lord to see if you're going to be okay. So what's his problem? Well, if you look back at the end of 1 Kings 22, when he becomes king, he's become king. His father Ahab died. Now, verses 52 and 53 lay a whole pile of sins at his foot. So... This, this is mama and daddy's boy. He's continuing all the traditions of Ahab, his former king, and Jezebel, his mom, the former queen, that you've learned about for the past six weeks. So this chip off the old block is a chip, but it's not a very good block. And as he enters the kingship, he may be religiously like his mom and dad. But he has none of the political authority, none of the power. And you see that because what's the very first thing that happens in Second in Kings 1, verse 1? Moab, which is a client state, a, a subservient state to Israel, revolts. Now, if that's not enough trouble, he's got a personal problem going on, which is somehow, we don't know how the klutz managed to do it, he fell through the lattice in his upper room and is now injured bodily and sick in bed. Now, this is not just a personal medical problem if you're the king of Israel. If your king is unable to rally the people, if your king is unable to go out and lead the army, if your king is unable to keep the power structure and even the intimidation that makes one of these ancient kingdoms work going, this is actually a political and geopolitical problem, too. You can expect more revolts. And, in fact, if those revolts get going and you're not stopping them, you can expect palace intrigue. You can likely suspect a coup at some point to take you out. And he's so sick in bed that he can't even get out of bed to stop the problem. So Ahaziah's problem in verse 2 is exactly this. Is this stuff going to work out? I need to know. I need to figure out. I need somewhere to go to find out, is it going to be all right? Am I going to get out of this mess? So that's his problem. What's his solution? Well, first off, we need to note that the right answer is sitting there right in front of him. Ahaziah's correct answer should have been that he should have turned to Yahweh, the God of Israel and the Lord of the whole world, to say, am I going to be all right? Now, we learn that this really was not only there, but apparent to him, sort of in a backhanded way, verses 7 and 8. So, back up to verse 5. You know, he sent out the messengers. The messengers get back and he says, what are you doing back? It takes longer than that to get to Ekron and back. Why are you already back here? And they say, oh, a guy met us on the way and sent us back with this message. And they gave him this message of doom. And he says, what'd that guy look like? Tell me about that guy. And look at the description in verses 7 and 8. He wore a coat, or he wore garments made of hair, Some people say it actually says that he's a hairy man. Who knows which one it is. And he had a leather belt. How much of a description is that to go on? And do you think there might be more than one person in the nation of Israel who met that description? But what does the king say? It's Elijah the Tishbite. Makes you suspect he already knew who this was. He's just confirming what he already suspected. It's that same Elijah that plagued my mother and father. It's that same troublesome prophet of Yahweh that has made a mess year upon year and decade upon decade. He he knew that there was a prophet of Yahweh there. He knew that it was available to consult the God of Israel. The right answer was right in front of him, but he didn't take it. What did he do instead? He sends messengers to Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. Beelzebub is later used in later literature as an epithet even for Satan. Um, so it's, it's debated, by the way, whether it's Baal's above, which literally translates Lord of the Flies. And it may very well have been. That may have been the name of this god. It may have been Baal Zebul, which would mean Baal is a prince. Seems a slightly better name for your god, don't you think? Um, if it were that... It seems that what happened is the Israelites decided to call him in Baal Zabub instead of Baal Yeah, you may say Baal's a prince, we say he's the Lord of the Flies. And this is how you write about your enemies. And that's the key point. To understand this text, you need to know one fact of geography. Ekron was a Philistine city. It was one of the five capital cities of the Philistines, the ancient enemies of Israel, the mortal enemies of Israel, the people they had been fighting for centuries. So Ahaziah, with the right answer to consult the God of the universe right in front of him, instead sends messengers to the God of an enemy city, their mortal enemies, to find out if he's going to be okay. Why would he do that? What's the belief system that's running out there underneath Ahaziah that would make him do this? And this is sort of a basic principle of humanity, by the way. We do things because we believe other things not just intellectually, but with our heart even, we have certain beliefs, and our beliefs do matter because they lead to actions. And so if you take our actions and you sort of try to decompose and get underneath them, you can often figure out, and you can do this with yourself, you can figure out, what is it that I'm really believing here? And if I keep telling lies, what is it underneath that activity that's what I really believe? If I keep getting drunk and, you know, off my rocker, what is it that I believe that's leading me there? Well, you can do the same thing biblically with limits. What is it that Ahaziah believes? Well, first off, he's a Baal worshiper. Verse 52 at the end of 1 Kings had said that he continued the sins of his mother and father, Ahab and Jezebel. So he worships Baal, not Yahweh. But here's the key point Baal is not the same as above. Now, look, I know polytheism gets confusing. Um, It particularly gets confusing when they go and share the same names. But in Hebrew and in all the Canaanite languages that surrounded the area, the word we use as Baal is actually Baal. And it just means lord or ruler or master. So a whole lot of different ancient polytheist gods had the word Baal in their name. This is even why when Israel is said to be unfaithful throughout the Bible, it often says that they went after the Baals, plural. Because there are lots of different gods that have the name Baal in there and Baal's above the Philistine god was a different god now, now that's important because up until now in this text we've looked at in first kings it's sort of been mano a mano or god I God, Yahweh versus a- versus Baal and you've seen encounter after encounter where God and Baal are taking each other on it's been one-on-one but what we see Ahaziah doing in this text is a different religious move. He is a Baal worshiper. Yet when it comes time to figure out is he going to be okay, he sends messengers to a different god down further south, the god Baal's above of Ekron. Why? Because this god was thought in the ancient world to have the power of prophecy. So what is Ahaziah doing here? I worship Baal in some parts of my life. But you know what? In other needs, I need a different God. And so in these other areas of my life, I'm going to segment my life, and in this area of my life, I need Baal's above, not Baal. And you know what? Probably in this other area of my life, I need Asherah. He probably even would have been willing to say, in this area of my life, I need Yahweh. As long as you don't let Yahweh start being the Lord of everything, crowding out all these other gods. He's basically making a pluralist move here saying, there are a bunch of different gods, a bunch of different stories, and they all have their place, and it's okay if I segment my life to give each god a little spot. But Yahweh Yahweh doesn't take that very well. And we'll come back to that in a second. Um, What's interesting is this move that he's making is really the same move we make today. Um, Jill and I went out on a date. We got a date about three or four weeks ago where we went to see the life of Pi. Um... Spoiler alert, um, we are long past the statute of limitations about telling the end of a movie. So if you haven't seen it, it's your own tough luck at this point. But we go to this movie, and and it was visually stunning. You know, it was everything they said with Ang Lee, and it was really nice to see 3D done well, not just have sort of the dinosaur lounge at you or something. So, I mean, it was everything. It was cracked up to be visually. It was a little slow, but it was was good. But as we leave, I start trying to think about it, because the movie starts with the main character talking about how he was Hindu, but he became a Christian. He didn't cease being Hindu. And then he became a Muslim, but he didn't cease being Christian or Hindu. And his family's saying, you can't be all these things at once. And he's saying, yes, I can. And then he almost seem to forget that in the movie. And you go into this long story, the boy on the boat with the tiger. And at the end of the movie, or the book, if you've read it, the people interviewing him when he's reached land and he's in the hospital say, that story's just a little hard to believe. And he says, well, let me tell you another story. And suddenly the whole thing shifts on you. And watching or reading, you realize that the events may have been much more pedestrian. And he tells you the second story, which is about four people in a lifeboat in the conflict and how three of the four end up being killed. And the story, the story in the movie end with the, his own audience in the movie saying, wait, well, which story is it? And he says, well, I've told you two stories. Which one do you want to believe? Now, on the way out of the movie, I start trying to take this thing apart. We're in the car on the way home, and I'm like, well, Jill, I, you know, what's he trying to say there? And, what's the, and Jill's just looking at me, she's like, can't I just enjoy a movie? Do we really have to just unpack this thing? And I'm like, you took me to Life of Pi. Look, if you take me to Die Hard 5, we aren't going to unpack it. There's nothing to unpack. <laughs> Guys like to blow stuff up. We're not allowed to, so we like to watch other guys blow stuff up and pretend we can. We're done. But no, we went to life of Pi, so yes, I'm going to take this thing apart. I can't help it. But I said, and and I later went and read book reviews and checked this out, because I said, I mean, clearly the end of the movie has to relate to the beginning, and what he's really talking about is not a boy and a tiger or not. What he's really talking about is this basic idea of, can there be more than one faith? And I thought, really, is that all you've got for me? At the end of this stunning movie and everything else, all you've got for me is that tired old trope of, well, they're all somewhat true and pick whichever story you like the most. I thought, really? That's all you gave me. That just didn't get me there. But you get the point, right? Our pluralism is really just the same thing as Ahaziah's pluralism. We just dress it up in different clothes. The story we want to pick is not the story of Baal. But it's the same thing. Yahweh can be your God, our world tells us. That's just fine. He can even be powerful, as long as you don't dare make him exclusive. As long as you don't dare make him the only God out there. It's just the same thing, dressed up in different clothes. And Ahaziah had this belief system, and it motivated him, therefore, to turn away from the correct answer, from the right answer, and instead turn to this false answer, by sending to Beelzebub, the god of the Philistines. And God doesn't take it very well. What's God do in verse 3? He says, okay, Elijah, up. Go tell him this was a really bad move. He's not going to recover because of this. And you get a real sense of, of how dreadful a decision it is in Ahaziah's life in verse 17 at the end of the chapter. Not only did he only reign for two years, which is a really slight rule for an ancient king, how does he die? He dies, the Bible makes a point of saying, with no son, no heir. Now, that needs some explaining to modern American audiences. I have two girls, and I am just fine but I have no son. An ancient Middle Eastern man would never have been just fine having no son. It's a chauvinist society. Let's just call that out and put it that way. And it mattered that you had a boy to continue the family line. And the ultimate mark of shame we don't understand it because we don't have as big a deal about boys, we also don't understand it because we're so much more individualist but this was a society where your real mark was not even about you but it was about how your kids and your kids' kids and your kids' kids how the rest of your family line did that was the real mark of you and so the ultimate shame for him as a king was that his end of the family line was a dead end it's a disastrous answer God doesn't take it well And you know what? He doesn't take it well with us either when we run to something else to tell it's going to be okay. And we do this all the time. If you go get a drink, you know, before you're going to go out, you just need one drink to sort of take the edge off. What are you doing? You're saying, I just need this to make me feel like I'm going to be okay. If you get lots of drinks on Saturday night because you just can't handle the loneliness and trouble of your life, what are you doing? You're saying, I need something to make me feel like it's going to be okay if you're determined to buckle down and have the self-control and be the one who controls your future, what are you really saying? I will make sure that I'm going to be okay. You know, we can even dress this up in much better language. Um, If your first turn when stuff goes wrong is to turn to your friends, even your Christian friends, and say, let's talk about it. Help Help me get through this. Help me make sure it's going to be okay. Instead of turning to the Lord, it's still a wrong first turn. So we're doing all these same things ourselves. And we talked about it in the staff devotions this week. Why do we do this? We came up with at least two things. One, we just don't do the invisible very well. And when it comes down to it, we want things we can touch, we can see, we can hold. Things that we can feel a real visceral connection to as our security. But second, maybe even more important, why do we do this? Because those other things are both timely and they're controllable. You know what? If you go out and spend the right money, if you offer the right sacrifice to get the right alcohol, the right drug, the right whatever, you can, in a fairly predictable time, know that you're going to feel pretty good. You're going to feel like things are going to be okay. All these other things, and this is true of the ancient world. Beelzebub, he would have sent the messengers with a big sacrifice, basically bribing the God to say... Show me it's going to be okay. If I make the right thing, I can control this thing. But the scriptures tell us God's a jealous God. There are certain roles that are God's and His alone, and He will not cede them to any other. Now, here's the good news. You don't have to be like Ahaziah. You don't have to run to these other things to make you think you're going to be okay, because there's another character in this story. We have this third captain, unnamed you know what? He's, still, he's got a problem too. And he's got a solution. And he's got a belief system. And it's very different from the king. Now he's sent out, like the other two captains before him, to arrest Elijah. And make no mistake, this is an arrest. He's, you know The king sends the captain with 50 men. This isn't a consult. This isn't, hey, I'd like to chat. This is, Ahaziah is mad. My parents should have taken care of this punk Elijah I'm going to finish the job. So he sends the men out there, and you should not think that either the first or the second captain are somehow believing. People sometimes get distracted by verse 10 when he says, man of God. That's just a title. That's just what Elijah was known at. Calling him man of God just means, hey, you, come on down here. It's not an expression of faith. And what you see from verse 9 through the end of the chapter is actually a power contest between the king and the prophet who's really strong who's really true well the first and second captains go out there and they say Elijah come down by the way Elijah must be growing Elijah must be doing better spiritually what happened when Jezebel said I'm going to kill you he turned tail and ran out into the desert as fast as he could and had a pity party this time he's hanging out on the top of a hill waiting and they come they come to arrest him take him back probably kill him at least imprison him man of God come down he says okay you want to call me that If you think I'm a man of God, then I'm going to call on God to defend me against you. And God does in a supernatural way. Now, it must not be too far from where Elijah is to where these guys are, because the whole thing seems to unfold pretty quickly. King sends a second captain with 50. Well, this guy ought to get it, right? Well, maybe it was an accident. Maybe lightning just hit at just that time. So he says the exact same thing, except man of God, come down now. And Elijah says, okay, same song, second verse. We do it again. So the third captain, think of this guy. Ahaziah is wondering if it's going to be okay over weeks or months or maybe even years. Am I going to get better? This guy's wondering if he's going to be okay over the next hour. As he walks with his 50 men and then walks up this hill towards Elijah, the king, his boss, has sent him and said, bring back Elijah. Elijah. Once might have been a coincidence. Twice clearly ain't a coincidence. He's walking, he's walking up the hill to his own execution, and he knows it. So if anybody's wondering whether he's going to be okay in this passage, it's this captain, right? What's his solution? His solution is to go forward, go up to Elijah, verse 13, and kneel down and beg for mercy. To say, look, I know what has happened. Please have mercy on the life of me, your servant, and these 50 men that I command I know you could do this to us, just like the last ones. I know that we, even in a sense, deserve death, because we are part of this contest between you and the king, and we're his emissaries. But please have mercy on us. And what does God do? Make no mistake, it's God who has mercy on them, not Elijah. Verse 15, God tells Elijah, it's okay, you can go with him. And as a result, Elijah doesn't call on God to defend himself, but God's the one who initiates the mercy here. God says, this guy's safe. You can go with him. You can trust you're not going to get stabbed in the back, arrested, killed, thrown in jail, whatever. Go on down. So they go on down together to the king. What belief system was going on in this captain that would have motivated his actions? Well, certainly he gets that God's powerful, right? He's seen what's happened to the first 250s. But it's not just that, because if all he thought it was God's powerful, then he's stuck stuck between a rock and a hard place. The rock is King Ahaziah. What do you do if you're a military commander and the king tells you to do something and you don't do it? You get killed. That's treason. On the other hand, the hard place is Yahweh, who apparently is going to burn him up if he goes up there. Now, if all he thought is that this is a power issue, what would he do? Well, he'd say... Pretty dang dangerous to cross the king. It's even more dangerous to cross God. I'm going to disobey the king and run for my life. Something like that. But that's not what he does, is it? Because he knows more than that. He knows the character of Yahweh. So instead, he goes forth knowing that God is both powerful and a God of mercy. So he is able to go up to Elijah and say, I know I deserve to be a dead man for coming here. God is a God of mercy and I can lay my life before him and trust on him to forgive and trust that he will not smite me like I deserve. So his belief system, he knows that God is both a God of power and a God of mercy. And as a result, he can come lay himself before Elijah and trust that God will forgive him. Now, you and I can do the same thing. Why can we do the same thing? Because... On a Thursday night of Holy Week, thousands of years ago, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ really wondered if it was going to be okay. Really. I mean, he was God. He knew what was going to happen, right? Well, yes, he was God, but he was also fully human. Orthodox Christianity said he was fully God and fully human, and Jesus Christ, the human being in the garden, knows that Judas Iscariot has run off to betray him. He knows what the leaders of the nation and the Romans are going to do to him. He knows what it's going to mean to hang on a cross, and he even knows that he's going to experience the full wrath of God, that he is going to die for the sins of humanity. Don't minimize what Jesus went through because of his divinity. He desperately, as a human, needs to know this is going to be okay. And he is betrayed. He is crucified. He does die feeling every bit of God the Father's wrath for sin. On the third day, it's okay. He rises again from the grave, up in glory, and goes and right now reigns at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That means it's going to be okay for you. That means it's going to be okay for me. We can believe that. What do I mean? Same three categories. Our problem, our solution, our belief. What's our problem? When you really come down to it, Our problem is so much worse than anything you thought of when I started this. It's so much worse than the job news. It's so much worse than the health news. It's so much worse than the family news. And I don't mean to minimize any of those things. They are terrible. They are terrible, and they are hard, and they keep us up awake every night. But we don't pay attention to the even deeper problem. The even deeper problem being that Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That our real problem is not even all these things, that as bad as they are are still temporal. Our real problem is there is another life after death. And that life you will be raised, I will be raised either to God's glory and goodness forever or to God's judgment and wrath forever. Now, I dare say that's not how most Americans think of themselves. Most Americans think of ourselves as, hey, I'm basically good with a few bad things around the edges. The Bible, no offense, but if you take it, I'm sorry, the Bible says that's hogwash. You're not basically good with a little mess around the edges. You're basically sinful and awful with a little good around the edges. And our problem, the Bible says, is that the wages of sin is death. Let me try to illustrate that. Um, William Golding, book titled The Lord of the Flies from about the 50s or so. I'd have to look about exactly when it was. Controversial book when it comes out. Why? Because it's a story of a bunch of British lads who end up marooned on a paradise island. Um, They need really nothing. The land has everything they're going to need. They start out with a civilization of sorts, an organization, and they very rapidly through the book devolve into tribalism, into savagery. They start imagining that there's this beast on the island. Um, They somehow manage to catch and kill a pig, and they mount its head on a stick and offer it to this beast as an offering. This becomes the title of the book, The Lord of the Flies, as well as a dead pig's head is going to be attracting flies. And near the end of the book, not near the end, but pretty close, Simon um, stumbles across it and starts having almost this hallucination, and the head starts talking to him and giving the words that pretty much everybody would acknowledge are the author's words and the pig tells him there's no beast you guys have made the beast up or more precisely the beast is inside every one of you you are the beast you are the problem and that is the biblical message is the beast is inside every one of us we all are sinners this is our problem what's the solution the solution is to do the exact same thing this captain did walking up to Elijah god you are right I deserve death for my sin. I get it. But I know who you are. And I know that you, while you are just and powerful, are merciful and you love to forgive sin. Please have mercy on my life, Lord, and all these with me. I throw myself on you. That is our solution. And you can trust in that. What can you believe? You can believe in that. Why? Because the person to whom you are going to beg forgiveness. Just like this young man went up to Elijah, the Jesus Christ to whom you are going to beg forgiveness is the one who died for you.